going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. I'd like to start off the show by thanking all of you for the outpouring of support and condolences for us here at 770 CHQR. There's a blinking light on the phone of John Hempy right now. His desk is right beside mine, indicating he has a voicemail that he's not going to hear. There's an empty Tupperware container, which had some of sort of leftovers in it for lunch. He's not going to be taking that uh, Tupperware container home. His headphones and water bottle are sitting at his desk as he had left them on Friday, January 18th. One of the last conversations I had with John was actually while I was on the road that same day. He had called me to tell me of the tragic passing of our friend and colleague, Peter Watts. He told me that if I needed anything over the next couple of weeks to just let him know, and I offered the same to him and told him that we chat on Monday about my road trip, which will eventually be part of our election campaign coverage. We didn't have that chat. As you've heard through the course of the last few days, John passed away on Friday a few days after being found unconscious outside his gym. We later learned he had some sort of aneurysm or stroke. Uh, We hoped for the best over the last few days, but it just wasn't meant to be. I've been in a state of disbelief for the last couple of weeks with Peter's passing and now John's passing. These are two people who I was extremely fortunate to spend a lot of time with over the last several years. I've told you the story of Peter, and I want to tell you the story about John. And with John, we actually met on Twitter. Uh, He was producing a show in Saskatchewan uh, looking for a reporter covering the Alberta floods, and he reached out to me. And afterwards, we had a passing Twitter friendship. Then in late 2016, uh, as news director here at the radio station, I was looking for a reporter, and a resume crossed my desk with a familiar name on it. I had always admired John's work from afar, and the thought of him joining our newsroom was extremely exciting to me. In January 2017, he joined our team, and he fit right in. He got along with everybody, and he worked his tail off. What amazed me most about John was his ability to take what seemed like a really pedestrian story and turn it into something incredible. Whether it was covering city hall or school boards or breaking news, he covered all of them with integrity and he earned the respect of not just his fellow reporters, but those he was questioning. It spoke volumes to me over the last couple of days to hear about his character. When people reached out to me over the weekend saying they didn't necessarily like the questions he was asking, but they respected the heck out of him for asking those questions. That's when you know you have a good reporter. He covered this story like a seasoned veteran, even though he was only here for a couple of years as a reporter. He then moved on to becoming the executive producer, the guy who oversaw all of our shows. And the script was flipped as he found himself as part of the crew that interviewed me as we searched for the new host of Calgary today. And true to what I'd come to expect out of John, he asked tough but fair questions. They were always the right questions. Which brings me to one of the last emails he sent me. Every morning, I would send a note to John and my producer, Justin, with some ideas on possible topics we could cover during this show. In his response, John reminded me of the keys to a successful radio show. He said, and I quote, I'm asking everyone to start thinking about content for our shows. The three questions we should always be asking, why is this on the radio? What's in it for the listener? 
and how does it impact heart, health, and pocketbook? After today's show, I'm going to print these questions off in a big bold, in big bold letters and hang them at my desk. It'll be a daily reminder of not only how lucky we are to be connected to our community in a truly unique way, like on the radio, but I also, but also to remember a colleague. John wasn't just a great broadcaster. He was an incredible human being. We're all a lot better for knowing John. We're going to miss him so very much. I'd like to send all of our love to his families and his close friends. We'll be back in a second. So clearly it's been a tough couple of weeks, not just for us here at the radio station, but I know a lot of people feel the same way. They feel the struggles that we go through on a, on a daily basis here lately. But also I know that there are a lot of people who are suffering in their own way and to maybe help you with those challenges that you might be facing as well. I thought it'd be great to bring in somebody that can maybe shed some light on the feelings that you're feeling, the feelings that we're feeling. And as a result, we wanted to bring in uh, Sonia Quinlan at Jacob. She's a counseling therapist and team lead with the Canadian Mental Health Association. Sonia, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you for inviting me. When it comes to the grieving process, it is something that is very individualized, isn't it? Yes, it is very much. Each person has their own experience through the grieving journey. How should people be deciphering how far along the journey they are? Maybe walk us through the the steps that you almost have to go through to kind of wade your way through that process. Well, for each person, it's slightly different. And we always say to people that sometimes you might um, be moving ahead a few steps, but then something might happen to bring you back to the beginning again. And that's okay. That's part of the journey, too. So you might be starting off at the shock phase. That's often where most people start, that they're really shocked about the fact that their loved one has passed. And they're just trying to come to terms with the fact that this has happened to them. And then as they start to move along their journey and decide, you know, how they're going to handle it, different people handle it differently. So some people are wanting to get out and do things. Some people just kind of want to sit in it and don't really want to be around people. And then there's a mix of everything in between. So there really isn't the fact that there's one way to grieve. How important is it to be able to communicate and talk things through and find someone to find some solace in? A lot of our clients um, and even a lot of the research shows that that's very important to the process, that it can help you along the journey. Just to know that there's other people out there that have had a similar experience to you can be very helpful. What are the challenges for those who are going through the process, but they don't necessarily know where to turn? Oftentimes, the challenges can be that they kind of get stuck in their grief and um, they feel like they are alone in the process. So that can be really hard and then it can lead to other things that sometimes we get confused with in terms of other mental health diagnoses like depression and anxiety. Oftentimes, the person's really just struggling with grief and the aftermath of the grief, which can present as a lot of similar things as well. If you have a family member that's going through this and you don't want to push them along through the process, but at the same time, you want to make sure that they're aware that they're there and you want to make sure that you're looking out for them, but you don't want to be pushy in the same vein. How do you strike that happy medium? 
oftentimes it's just saying to people that I'm here to listen if you want to talk. I understand that you're struggling or I can imagine that you're struggling. I just want to be here to listen when you need to talk. What is the the key, I guess, to knowing when you've kind of gone over that hill that you're you're into that acceptance phase how do you get there or can't or do does it have to come naturally it has to come naturally for lots of people every person's knowing when they've kind of hit that phase will be different for different people um lots of people it happens after the first year of grief once you've had all your year of firsts we call it so the first um, birthday of the person that you've lost the first anniversaries the first holidays um, and usually finally the first um, year since their passing as well is there something to be said for those who want to do things on their own because I know some people are going to feel frustrated, especially family members will feel a little frustrated that, Hey, somebody's not coming out of their shell or they're not opening themselves up and they just want to be alone for a while. Um, there is to a certain degree, but you also want to keep an eye on that person. So if they're behaving in a way or acting in a way that's not like their usual selves, then to another degree, like if they're suddenly becoming very, very isolated and aren't really wanting to be around anyone, period, you might want to keep your eye on that and just be checking in with them, you know, about how they're doing or invite them to do things with you, even if it's just sitting and watching a TV show or having a cup of coffee. It doesn't have to be about the big things, but it's knowing that you want them to be with you. What would you say is your number one piece of advice for your clients? Um, it's always that you need to kind of um, expect there to be ups and downs in your journey. What would you say is the number one misconception about the grieving process? That it's over very quickly. That, you know, we get a few days off of work and we get a few those few days and that we should be fine within that time span. But that's really not the case, that it does take longer than people think. Sonia, I appreciate the time this afternoon. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you. And pardon me, it's uh, Sonia. Sonia Quinlan uh, Jacob is counseling therapist and team lead with the Canadian Mental Health Association. As we here mourn the loss of John Hempy and, and continue to mourn the loss of Peter Watts over the last couple of weeks, uh, there's been a number of people who've said, how are you doing? Right. And, and I, again, I go back to my initial point in, in that letter right off the top that I wanted to say to all of you is, is thank you for that outpouring of support. Um, it means the world to us to be able to have, again, to have that connection with you, that you, you welcome us into your lives on a day to day basis. And so it means a lot when there's, there's that back and forth. And again, one of the things that uh, I've said in, in passing to a few different people is I've considered myself really lucky over the years because of a, my support system is incredibly strong. I'm lucky enough to have uh, two parents that, and two sisters that I can lean on in, in a moment's notice. I know uh, I called my dad and mom on Friday night after the Hitman game because I was I was hosting the game that night, so I wasn't able to call them until afterwards, but managed to call them, go home, have uh, Aaron beside me. It's That's a major part of why I can put up a bit of a stronger front than maybe uh, I would in other, situ- in other circumstances, I suppose. 
The other aspect is, is I, my upbringing, my parents were very, very supportive of shows of emotion. I'm, I'm really thankful for that. Is I've never been afraid to show love or sadness or anything else like that. And it's one of those things that I maybe I've understated in the past because I've been really lucky in that I haven't had a, a lot of loss close to me in, in the last few years. But when it comes down to it is, is it's really allowed me to not get over it, but understand it and be able to contextualize it. It's never going to be easy, and, and I'm fully aware that I'm going to have my ups and I'm going to have my downs over the next little while, and I fully anticipate that uh, everybody else around the station is going to be in the same way, and I think that a lot of you are all going to face this at some point. And that's why I really wanted to get uh, Sonia on the radio is to, to allow you all to know that you're not alone in this process. We're not alone in this process because we have great people like you listening to us and and, and showing your love and support. And again, uh, from the bottoms of our hearts, thank you guys so much for uh, for all your support on that front. It's one of those bones of contention that some people have, and we've dived into this topic more than once over the last few months, but a new report is shedding a little bit of light on the link or a possible link between excessive screen time and the learning abilities of younger kids, particularly under the age of five, pre-kindergarten. Is it good to use the iPad as a babysitter while you're doing your chores, as an example? Is it a good idea to have them playing in front of their computer versus going out and playing in the backyard? Joining us now, Dr. Suzanne Tuff, a professor at the University of Calgary in the Coming School of Business. Uh, she joins us, or Coming School. Uh, thank you so much, Suzanne, for joining us this afternoon. You're welcome. You guys have been sitting down and trying to go over the numbers, the facts, the figures surrounding uh, children and their screen time. What have you guys found? Well, I think the key message we have found is that Screen time does influence children's development, both uh, their fine motor skills, their gross motor skills, their social and communication skills, and too much screen time puts them at risk for being behind when they start school or as they get older. What is it that's linking this together? What's making them slow down? Well, there's a couple of theories, and that's not our core area of expertise, but what we think is happening is one of two things. One is uh, some brain scientists would suggest that there's something called digital interference. So the bright lights and the highly reinforcing gameplay is actually compromising development. The other thing that's very practical is that when they're on the screens, there's missed opportunities in doing things that are more helpful for development. So when you're um, on a screen, you're not playing, you're not doing creative arts and crafts, you're not practicing your running or you're skipping. 
How do you find that happy medium? Because the, the one pushback that we always get whenever I bring this topic up is the notion that, hey, this is just the day and age. I mean, the, the faster you can get kids into it, the easier it's going to be for them to learn down the road and be a part of society the way it is. So it, this almost seems kind of counterintuitive, that notion, though, no? Well, I guess it's like all things in moderation. And it's a very important question because we know that families are busy and we know that families are stressed. And sometimes media is used unconsciously as a pacifier or babysitter. And so what I think our work is really saying is it's not to avoid media exposure. It's to be very conscious and planful in the kind of media and when the media is going to occur. One of the things, too, that uh, it seems to cut into is that physical activity aspect. So there's not enough uh, riding a bike or throwing ball around or anything like that. Exactly, exactly. So it cuts into our outdoor recreation, our indoor recreation, all of those things that actually settle children down, make it easier for them to have a good night's sleep, make it easier for them to have a healthy appetite. And so really, I think... A common sense thing is to really focus on the missed opportunities when you're using screen time, as I said, as a pacifier or a babysitter. You mentioned the sleep aspect, and I was surpri- not really surprised. I, I don't know why I was surprised by it, but over the last few days, uh, I'd been having some hard time sleeping, and one of the things that I had gotten into a bad habit of was uh, before going to sleep, scrolling through Twitter and that kind of thing, and over the last couple of nights, I've been reading a book instead, and I can tell you that my sleep has gotten a lot better in the last couple of nights. Is there something to be said about the brain being on when it comes to an electronic device versus something that is not necessarily, you know, bright lights and shiny objects. Well, I think you're really highlighting some of the new recommendations that suggest we avoid all screen time an hour before bed and that we avoid screens in the bedroom, particularly for children. And we go back to things that we know are soothing and calming, like books and reading or talking to one another. So um, you're exactly right. There's uh, an interesting part of this report as well as it dives sort of into the the, the recommendations and, and that. And the one that um, made me kind of go, huh, I never thought of that would have been the family media plan. Talk a little bit about one of that aspect of things. Well, you know, children role model their parents. And I think having a family media plan can help everybody get on the same page. And actually, in some ways, if your children are a bit older, help everybody hold themselves accountable to what the family's trying to achieve. And so... When you have a plan, you're more likely to stick by it, and you're more likely to be conscious in your media use, and maybe you're more likely to then sit down and say, okay, well, we won't have media at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and we won't have it in the car. We'll use those as places where we can talk to one another, and then when we do look at media, we say, well, what are we going to look at, and what are we interested in? So I think it really builds family cohesion and really gets you talking about something that you might not be as aware of. Uh, if you don't have that conversation. It's funny how the family dynamic has changed even in the last 15 years around that, or even less than that, because, man, when I was a kid, you know, even even as a as a older teenager, I think we had one computer, and it was, granted, it was dial-up internet, so the, that was an issue all on its own, but it, it's one of those things where it was the only item that had internet connection, and now everything you own has an internet connection or has some sort of playability to it that is so easy to, to walk around with. And that makes it a, a bit of a challenge for a lot of families, doesn't it? Well, I think it 
does make it a big challenge. And I think that although it's beyond the scope of this researcher's this research. There's mm-hmm. other people that are looking at how it impacts our relational skills. And so you can imagine, we're looking at small children here who are entertaining themselves maybe too much through a screen time device. But part of what we are looking for in building our civic society is the relatability to the people around us, including those in our family. And we need to practice those skills in order to then be able to participate in group activities when we get to kindergartens or when we get to sports or soccer or baseball or anything that we're doing. So I think it's really relevant to recognize that we're not talking about going back to decades ago when we didn't have access to this. We're talking about balance and what's the best use of it to create healthy, thriving children. Oh, come on. You don't want to go back to uh, dial-up internet? That'd be a lot of fun. I mean, no, I'm kidding. Uh, Suzanne, I appreciate the time this afternoon. Thanks so much for diving into, uh, into your guys' report. Well, thank you so much. Take care. Remember that sound? And especially the the worst part about the dial-up internet thing was that, especially if you wanted to download tunes, I was a LimeWire user. I can't remember what the other one was. There's a bear. I can't remember what it was called. Anyways, uh, you had to wait until like middle of the night because you knew that if you tried to download a tune at like 7 at night, somebody was invariably going to call and ruin the connection. And then you'd have to try to redial and take... days to download a song it was awful how do you how do you get kids away from the from the internet do that but it's amazing how technology has changed that much and even just trying to think probably 15 years or so yeah i'd say about 15 years is when when i was down at the farm ish thereabouts 2003 2004 we were still on dial-up man oh man now you've got it all in the palm of your hand it's calgary today on 770 chqr Like I said, we wanted to dive into this discussion a little bit more. I was going to talk about it on Friday. We just ran out of time, frankly. But a headline like this kind of grabs your attention, if especially if you're involved in social media in any way, shape, or form. Is Mark Zuckerberg to integrate WhatsApp, Instagram, and Facebook Messenger, according to a media report. The three services will, however, continue as standalone apps, the report said, citing Four people involved in the effort. Now, it raises a bunch of different questions, right? When it comes to your privacy, as an example, when it comes to the business side of things, when it comes from an industry standpoint as well, I mean, is this sending a message to, oh, I don't know, Twitter, for example, is, hey, we're just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. Dive more in on this. We bring in Mike Agarbo. He's the host to Get Connected here on 770 CHQR. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Uh, love to be here. What precipitated this move in your eyes? I think there's a bunch of factors going on uh, right now. Uh, as you know, Facebook uh, owns uh, WhatsApp and also Instagram. And there's talk now of the uh, FTC down in the U.S. doing an investigation to see if they might potentially break up. Uh, Facebook, because they're saying they're becoming too powerful. If you look at each of those platforms, uh, all of them have over a billion users. So the competition uh, has uh, really died down because no one can really compete against that. And that's one of the big things is that this is a Facebook on its own is massive, but you add in those two and it's a completely different uh, ball of wax. 
Well, especially when it comes to messaging platforms, no one can touch Facebook now that they have uh, Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, and also uh, Instagram messaging uh, as well. So I, I think, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg is, is probably looking to see if he can totally integrate these platforms so it would be much more difficult in the future uh, for, uh, you know, any antitrust uh, regulators to try to break them apart. He could basically argue that it's just too integrated that it would be impossible to do. Does this do anything in terms of uh, the, the negative press that Facebook is facing around security, that kind of thing? Does that put anything to bed at that at this point? Well, I mean, he's uh, trying to come at it from a, a higher ground, uh, basically saying that he wants to integrate all of these platforms together because he wants to have more privacy. He wants to have end-to-end encryption uh, for all the messaging platforms. Currently, WhatsApp is the only one that has end-to-end encryption for the messages uh, set on by default. You can turn it on in Facebook Messenger, but it's not available in the Instagram uh, messaging. So what he's saying now that he wants to integrate all these platforms together, they'll still be standalone apps. Uh, but end-to-end encryption will be turned on for uh, all three of them. Yeah, you, you segued well into my next question, which was they're all going to be standalone apps, but what does this mean for the average consumer? Well, it's going to be interesting. Uh, you know, if we look at, uh, you know, the type of information each one of those platforms is asking of its users, they're kind of different. So I don't know how that's all going to work together. So for WhatsApp, all they want is your phone number. Uh, Instagram, you can actually set up anonymous accounts. And as we know with Facebook, they want basically all of our information on our firstborn uh, as well. <laughs> so, you know, what's going to happen when, uh, you know, you can basically message uh, through all three of those? You know, what kind of information will they want? Uh, if uh, you're just signing up through WhatsApp, uh, will they also want some other information because everything's integrated now? I, I don't know. Uh, you know, the regulators are looking at this over uh, in Europe. They're already uh, concerned about this. Uh, they've got some very strict uh, data protection uh, regulation over there with uh, GDPR. So already the uh, uh, the data people there are uh, asking Facebook to, to meet to understand more of this. So uh, I, I don't know how that's all going to roll out, but, uh, you know, will it be secure? Uh, you know, are they going to build this from the ground up? Are they going to try to bolt all this stuff on? Uh, to what they have now, uh, you know, time will tell. And that's one of the things, too. I know some people like to, whenever they post on Instagram, for example, you've got the option to link up to Twitter and to Facebook. Well, you little do you probably realize you might think that you've got your security setting on one all well and good, but linking them might be allowing that information to be shared between the different platforms anyways. Well, you know, when it comes down to the... Uh, uh, very essence of all of this. Facebook makes money uh, by serving up ads. And, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has been very clear about that. You get Facebook for free because they're able to service ads. And he's saying now with this uh, integration, he'll be able to serve up even more relevant ads. He says that that's what the users are asking for. Uh, but, you know, again, it's all about the mighty dollar at the end of the day. And, you know, Facebook, they've, they've got issues. They've uh, burned a lot of uh, uh, trust with people uh, out there. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if uh, they can build that trust up again. Mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of people are watching with great interest what Facebook is going to do with WhatsApp, Instagram, and uh, its messenger service. So, uh, Mike, I appreciate the time today. Thanks for having me. Mike Agarbo, the host of Get Connected here on 770 CHQR. I don't know. I the, My operator, Steve, and I were just talking about it a little while ago. Is What about the exit strategy? You know, there's just, you get the, you start to wonder how much is too much info? Something to think about. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. 
Thank you so much for downloading today's podcast. Do me a huge favor and leave a rating and a comment. And you can always hit me up on Twitter as well. Just follow me at Calgary Today.